the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, it is a Thursday already. We've only got a couple days left in this week, and yesterday was an eye-opener if uh, you were paying attention to the news. Uh, A a lot of uh, the news media weren't paying attention to the stories they have reported over uh, low these last three, four years dealing with Russian collusion and everything else that supposedly uh, was going on at the... uh, uh, you know, in, in Trump's campaign and whatnot. Uh, and uh, yesterday, day before yesterday, uh, or maybe it was yesterday, Good Morning America, I guess it was, so it would, would have been yesterday, uh, the vice president was on and with uh, Stephanopoulos, and uh, Stephanopoulos asked him what he knew about uh, the whole Flynn case, and he literally just sat there and uh, puttered around and said he didn't know anything and that he didn't have anything to do with what was going on, uh, you know, with them going after Flynn criminally and things of that nature. And then yesterday, a big bunch of of, uh, documents fell, and one of them uh, was the people who had asked that Flynn would be unmasked. Now, that means that they can look into what he's doing. And they can, they could, uh, it could be say, said that they were listening in to his phone calls and things of that nature. And lo and behold, whose name was on there other than Vice President uh, Biden? So Vice President Biden yesterday and Good Morning America lied about this. And what else is he lying about in this whole uh, Russian collusion thing that was going on? And how high did this go in the White House? Uh, I never really got into talking about where the White House was involved, other than to say with all the people who were saying that the uh, that Trump and and Flynn and, uh, you know, Page and, and all the rest of the uh, people that they were, they were going after, uh, that the only, you know, that the president had to know what was going on. You can't have that kind of investigation and be kept in the dark. And now we're starting to see that the president may have, in fact, had his own fingers into it. The vice president had his fingers into it. In fact, yesterday, Rand Paul talked about it, and we've got that sound for you. And, Jr., here's what Rand Paul had to say. 
Think about it. You remember we went through this thing called impeachment? They said the President Trump was using the government to go after a political opponent. This is Vice President Biden using the spying powers of the United States to go after a political opponent. He's caught red-handed here. Vice President Biden's caught red-handed eavesdropping on a political opponent's phone calls. That, to me, is alarming. That's an understatement. That, to me, is alarming. It's more than just alarming. Would you agree, Jr.? Absolutely. Uh, I think that especially as more information comes out, uh, it, it is alarming. Uh, I think people have to remember that, you know, it's been four years, but this goes back to when President Obama was still in the White House, Vice President Biden was still in the White House, um, and directing these sort of moves is, uh, you know, uh, is what people get tired of with politics, Dave, because there's this idea with the Obama administration that it was above reproach, you know, especially uh-huh. now, right, with the with the, uh, with the media. Um, and I think those who like to kind of uh, have this revisionist history, same people that believe Obama was great to the media, though he had one of the least transparent administrations uh, in our history. Um, and so uh, I think that it's that sort of revisionist history um, that this this previous administration never did anything that was uh, to this level. We're starting to see that that's not the case. Uh, and so, yeah, it's uh, it, it should worry uh, the American people on both sides of the aisle. Yeah, let's think about this for a second. Uh, you got a collection of intelligence uh, that uh, that the intelligence community does, and but the only way they can do this on U.S. persons while they're in the U.S. Uh, is that they're doing something against the law, and they have to the the, the uh, people in the federal government have to use a specific warrant from a FISA court uh, material on U.S. persons that's collected inadvertently through legitimate counterintelligence operations such as tracking Russian diplomats is masked unless there is a pressing threat that requires an extremely limited exposure of their identities. Now, what we've got is 16 Obama administration officials requesting access to Flynn's identity between the election and Trump's inauguration. Let me repeat that. We have 16 not a couple. We have 16. Clapper and Brenner and Comey and Powers and all the rest of them, Biden, all unmasking these phone calls so they can listen in. It's crazy. This is much bigger than anything that went on during the 70s with Nixon. But the media was silent absolutely silent they're still silent they're still not talking about it and uh, i heard uh, i think it was rush yesterday say that this was uh, the media missing the biggest political story of their lifetimes and why because they hate trump and so they're not going to report on anything that the democrats are up to that's what it's that's what it's all about jr this is disgusting uh, and this is a black moment on uh, on the media. You mentioned uh, Watergate, and it does kind of have that that feel to it, um, as far as you know, sort of initially, right? You know, when yeah. Watergate took place, there was sort of this fodder out there, and no one really took it a whole, you know, took it 
you know, really that seriously. I think Woodward and Bernstein at the time, it's not like they were household names, right? <laughs> they weren't. Uh, at, at that time, you know, and so there was this story that just kind of got kicked down the road. And uh, eventually, uh, I think everybody realized how big of a story. I mean, they did realize how big of a story it was and how deep it went. I feel like this is kind of the same deal. Um, we're going to we're going to wait. We're going to see uh, what exactly comes out. But you know, I do agree with uh, with Rush. I think this is a huge story. I don't think there's enough uh, attention being paid to it. Um, I'm sure there will over time. But I do think you're right that this administration is, uh, you know, uh, you know, has a has a different sort of obstacle in front of it with the media uh, that don't want uh, to necessarily look at this story. And I do think they're looking through, they're looking at it through a pair of rose-colored glasses in that, you know, uh, they think this is just another, maybe a ploy from Trump's political arm, you know, what's real, what's not real. I think what you're going to start seeing is some uh, legitimate investigative reporting that's going to start coming out. And there's going to be sort of this, you know, you've got everything going on, Dave, uh, with, you know, the coronavirus and Trump's reelect, and you've got Biden, you know, cloistered in some basement in Delaware. Um, and so, you know, you've got all these things going on, but what you're going to see is sort of this side story over here uh, that's going to start getting bigger and bigger and more information. Um, we're to the point where the media is not going to be able to ignore it. Um, yeah. So I do think it's going to come out, but I do think there's a pretty big obstacle there in the fact that, you know, the media just absolutely – uh, has disdain for this administration. Uh, there's not a lot of love loss. And uh, so if they can get over that hurdle, it's a big story to tell. Yeah. I like the way you put that, you know, not a lot of love loss, man. There's no love at all. I mean, that's, 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 one of the, yeah. that's probably one of the coldest relationships I've ever seen between the press and uh, a president, to be honest with you. But, uh, yeah, this is this is interesting, the, uh, the pristine, untouched, unvarnished you know beautiful obama administration was doing more unmasking than any administration in the history of this country that that should really give people a moment to pause to think see this reminds me when it came out there was a lot more going on during watergate than the cover-up of the break-in there was the information that came out about how President Nixon was using the IRS to go after uh, uh, the people uh, that were af- you know that were out there that he felt were not reporting fairly about him. There was his enemies list. Do you remember? Well, you don't remember. You weren't around. I was. Uh, they had a he had a he had an enemies list. He had a list oh, yeah. of, of the people that he felt. Uh, we're out to get, to get him. And it sounds like, to me, Obama's no different at all. He was doing these same kinds of things, except that he had a, me- a media that was willing to turn a blind eye to what was going on. What's important about the unmasking? Well, the unmasking, if you remember during that time, there was a whole lot of leaks coming out of the... Uh, uh, the administration and from and and from other other areas, this probably explains where a lot of those leaks were coming from. You got sixteen people eavesdropping, and if they hear anything good, I can only uh, 
presume that they were sharing it with the Washington Post. Last statement you might have about this. I'll let you, and then we're going to move on to something else. Uh, well, I mean, I think you, you wrapped it up there uh, pretty well. I mean, I think this is something that uh, the American people need to pay close attention to. This is going to become a bigger story as we move throughout the summer months. Um, but, again, it kind of comes down to the fact that you've got this uh, situation with uh, the media. They're, they're not going to give us fair coverage to begin with. Uh, that's why it's imperative for, for some uh, reporter, some outlet, a uh, group of outlets, uh, to start digging into this to make it a point where you can't ignore it. Um, and my last point about the Obama administration, uh, you mentioned the media sort of, you know, uh, giving a lot of deference to that administration and uh, and, and uh, letting the Obama administration kind of skirt by on some things. I, I cannot say this enough. This this was one of the least transparent administrations That's we've ever had uh, as far as the presidency goes. Um, and so this sort of double standard uh, that the media has. And look, you like Trump, you don't like Trump. I don't care. That has, this has nothing to do with who's in the Oval Office right now. It has to do with uh, the way the media treats each administration. There is a bias there. Um, and, and under Obama's administration, uh, the, the media was basically, you know, bullwhipped uh, into submission. <laughs> and, uh, and somehow they, they leave eight years later feeling like it was one of the greatest and most transparent presidencies uh, in our nation's history. And that's absolutely false. And so um, it, it is frustrating to watch, you know, how they react now versus how they reacted uh, four to five years ago. Um, and, and so that's certainly going to be an obstacle for this story to get some legs, but I do think it will. All right. That's good. J.R. Davis is our guest, uh, as he is on Thursdays uh, during the first hour. He's with the Gilmore Group. When we come back, I want to talk about a CNN story. CNN uh, came out with a poll uh, yesterday, and it shows President uh, uh, pardon me, former Vice President Joe Biden's lead over President Trump now stands at five points nationally, but that Trump has an edge of seven points in the critical battleground states. Why is that important? I'll tell you, and JNR and I will talk about it when we return here on the Dave Ellswick Show, 20 minutes after 6 o'clock. And uh, we got to get your traffic and weather for you. Let's do that right now. And uh, here you go. Here's your traffic. All right, back. And uh, I, I left you off thinking about that uh, Biden is leading over President Trump right now in poll numbers nationally, while the president is leading in poll numbers in the battleground states. So... Which is more important, leading nationally or leading in the battleground states? Well, Hillary Clinton found out really uh, the hard way that uh, if you're leading in the battleground states, you're in pretty good uh, you're in pretty good uh, place. Uh, let's look at the, the numbers that CNN found in their polling and then didn't even hardly talk about it because it it scared them. All right, this. This really scared the CNN uh, talking heads. In the new poll, 51% of registered voters nationwide, and basically when you look at registered voters, you're looking, at, uh, you're looking more at Democrats 
than independents and uh, Republicans. 51% nationwide back Biden, while 46% say they prefer Trump. While in the battleground states, now we're talking Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Ohio, all those big, big uh, states that hold a whole lot of what? Electoral votes is where Trump is leading. He, he leads just about in the battleground states the way Biden leads in the national vote, 52%, 45%. So what does that tell us? That tells me this. The, the people that, uh, that are following uh, Trump and, and the percentages that are going to vote Trump in the critical battleground states, that very well and probably will decide the Electoral College. And, uh, you know, you got to understand how our elections for president work with getting electoral votes. It's not by popular vote. I mean, uh, Hillary had more popular votes than she had electoral votes. So she lost. President won. He got, uh, what is it, uh, J.R.? It's 277. Isn't that it? Electoral votes? JR, are you still there? Sorry, okay. sorry Dave. I actually pushed the mute button. Okay. Uh, yes, you are correct. Okay, 277. So you're sitting there and you're, uh, you're, you're looking at this and you don't win by having the most popular votes. That way you, you, the election is not decided in, a, in just a few spaces in places like L.A., Chicago, New York, the big metropolitan areas. It's won by states that you carry and the electoral yep. votes that each one of those states has. And that's how President Trump became President Trump. He broke the blue wall of the uh, the Democrats. The blue wall was Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, that area. That, that was the wall that they that they they had built, that they were carrying all of those states. Well, now they're having to fight for every uh, electoral vote they can get uh, in in those those areas. And I think this shows that the president is uh, in good stead right now uh, for the upcoming election. Do you think the same thing? Well, well, first, it's it's 270. uh, Oh, 270, okay. You need 270 to win. Um, I think... I think so, Dave. I, honestly, I go back and forth about every week about where the, where the president stands. I mean, I think uh, I think Hillary Clinton made a lot of key mistakes in 2016. Obviously, she captured the, the popular vote, uh, but that's why we have an electoral college set up. You got to win it that way. You got to go to each state. You got to appeal to uh, all Americans. Um, you know, so uh, there were issues that she. There were some mistakes she made in the campaign. Um, and you also uh, had uh, a couple of other candidates uh, that were part of uh, that general election with, I think it's Gary Johnson, and I can't remember the uh, woman uh, that was in it as well, the Green Party candidate. So 
2016 was a very strange election. I think Trump has done what he's needed to do, uh, especially for the base to say, you know, here's who I've appointed to the Supreme Court. Here's the tax cut that I put into place. I'm appointing all of these judges, um, you know, that we're, we're going after uh, different, uh, you know, sort of red meat issues that presidents from the Republican Party have said they would before and haven't been able to. Um, and, of course, he just got his personality on top of that, which I think really appeals to the base. So I think he's done what he's needed to do to put himself in a position to be successful in November 2020. The problem is, and I think we talked about this last week, is that the Democratic Party, it just it honestly, right. it honestly want, comes down to the base. Okay, I want, you to hold, I want you to hold your thought. We'll come back and talk about this. We got the news right now. Back uh, at 25 minutes to 7, J.R. Davis, our guest from the Gilmore Group. J.R., you were saying uh, we're getting ready to say something about the Democrats talking about the uh, national numbers and, uh, you know, what uh, what were you going to bring up? So my, my point was, you know, I think Trump's done everything he, he's needed to do to this point to be successful in November 2020. Uh, the problem with it, though, for President Trump uh, is there is this sort of unified base with Democrats right now. And it's not about, I mean, truly, we saw it on the debate stage. There were all these different policies that were discussed. Who's who's the furthest left? Who's, you know, in the middle? And if you're in the middle, you're wrong, right? And so right. we saw that kind of play out on the debate stage. Well, once everyone sort of coalesced around Biden, this, the new message is just any, you know, let's let's just get Trump out of office. It's a very simple message that has fueled a lot of, you know, the Democratic base. On the other hand, you also have Trump's base, who is uh, just as excited about getting out and voting in November. I think it's going to really come down to, you know, which base can get their people out, which which base is the most motivated, and what does our landscape look like in November when it comes to the coronavirus? Um, you know, all, we know for a fact, at least through polling, uh, that uh, you know, that COVID is a bigger deterrent uh, to Democrats at the polls, uh, you know, as far as going out physically to vote uh, than it is to Republicans. So there's just a lot of there's a lot to this election, particularly uh, as we approach the fall and that there's a resurgence with the COVID-19. Um, but. Uh, I think Trump is, you know, I think he's in a good position. There's just, Dave, you could poll this every week and probably get some different answers. That's how much news has been created from basically the beginning of March until now. Oh, I agree. I don't agree. I I, I don't disagree with what you're saying. Uh, I was going to bring this up later but and talk about Pelosi now, but I'll put Pelosi later and we'll talk about this now. And And that is this. Red states are reopening. They're getting their businesses up and getting them running again. And uh, people now are being able to get out of their houses and, and things of that nature. Blue states, on the other hand, are, you know, completely reticent that they're not going to open right now. Uh, out in California, the governor talking about uh, it's going to be, you know, sometime near the end of summer before uh, he does that, and even then he, he hedges, saying that it might be the end of the year. New York uh, is going to start opening a few things up, from what I understand, tomorrow. But there, a lot of the red states are really, really holding back on this. And I think that that 
will have a negative effect on your constituency. And because if people can't work sooner or later, they're going to get tired of not being able to go in and work and uh, and make the living that they want to make. And they're going to get they're, they're going to get very dissatisfied with this. I think the Democrats are playing a very, very dangerous game right now. What do you think? Well, absolutely. I think so. I mean, we, we've talked about this before, Dave. I do think there's so much going on right now. And I think it's it's sort of President Trump's to win or lose at this point with the coronavirus. Uh, what you have to remember about the American people, you know, we live in a day and age where everything is sort of instant. Um, uh-huh. And, you know, we can get whatever we want whenever we want it at any point during the day. Uh, it's just sort of this, it's just the way we live now. So when all this took place, you know, mid-March and things started shutting down, there was a sense probably of shock. Uh, things slowed down. People started working from home. Uh, it was okay, you know, for that first month. And then that second month started rolling around and we're trying to figure out what's next. Uh, people are getting impatient. And it's not just Republicans. You know, there may be, you know, again, we go back to the polls and more Republicans are, you know, uh, I would say take this as serious as, as the Democrats do. Um, but when you start putting those, you know, kind of the plurality of both sides together, there's the sense of we've got to get back to some sort of normalcy. And I even talk about Hollywood. I mean, there's articles out there that, you know, they're doing everything they can just to try to get the studios back up and running. I mean, these are these are the Hollywood elite, right? People just want to start working and have some sort of normalcy again. And at some point, Dave, you know, you, you turn on CNN, and I think it was last week or, or earlier this week, they all kind of run together. You know, everyone's, you know, hitting the president on, on you know, saying the numbers, you know, the death numbers were going to be this, the death numbers are going to be that. It is a moving target because they're continuing to look at these numbers as they get them in. But I'll remind you of what those numbers looked like in March. And we were talking about millions of deaths across the world, right? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and that's not what happened. So when you start getting these statistics and these numbers and this analysis, and it looks less than what it was at the beginning of March, this idea starts creeping into both sides that, you know, maybe this wasn't as big of a deal. Do we need to shut down the economy in its entirety? Uh, And I do think the Republican governors are on the right side of this because at the end of the day, if there's going to be a flare up again, uh, I think most Americans, and I truly believe this, are going to be okay with that and less concerned about, you know, getting themselves sick or someone else sick right now. Now, granted, again, you have a resurgence, the hospitalization skyrocket, ventilators are, you know, are taken up. You know, that's a different situation. And and I certainly pray we don't get to that point, but everyone, you know, the doctors and everyone you speak with and, and the ones that are on TV talking about this, everyone believes that there's going to be, a lull in the summer and possible resurgence in the fall. But Dave, you can't pin down. If, if you're talking to a doctor who is, who is unbiased, who's literally just looking at the numbers, they cannot tell you uh, with certainty that there's going to be a resurgence in the fall. They think there might be, there's a chance there could be because we're looking at history of the flu. And, the, and a lot of them are going back at the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic Nobody knows for sure. And I say that to say, you know, Democrats are kind of playing with fire right now. Yeah. Because if they keep these states closed 
and you see some of these Republican states open and the economy is starting to get back on track and we get into September, October, you know, and there hasn't been a resurgence, but economic activity is kind of back where at least on track and, and going in the right direction. The Democrats are in trouble because it's just you're, you're just kind of testing people's patience at this point. Um, and, and another thing, and I'll make this really quick, Dave, just on the national uh, election between Trump and Biden. You know, one thing Trump has is that he's continued. You can disagree with him, like the media is going to continue to chastise him for not wearing a mask and that sort of thing. But but Trump is out there. He's out there every day, whether it's at a news conference or now he's starting to travel around the country again, you're seeing him out there as a very public figure uh, and a very healthy figure. You know, again, whatever yep. you think of the guy, he's out there. Uh, you know, a, a juxtaposition here is that you're contrasting that figure and that perception of Trump with Biden, who I think a lot of people feel is incredibly frail. Uh, he's, you know, in their minds, too old to be president, though Donald Trump is still in his mid-70s. Uh, but it's not the same perception. And so you've got Joe, you know, holed up in some basement, uh, talking to the national media through his, you know, in studio, uh, uh, or his, uh, in, in, you know, apartment studio, uh, he doesn't leave. Uh, there's pictures of, of him with, you know, sitting on a porch talking to his grandkids cause he can't touch them from the farm. I mean, there's just all of these perception issues with Joe Biden is like, is he too frail to be president? Yep. Uh, and, and you've got Trump, whether you, you, you like him or you don't, he's out there and he looks healthy and he looks like he's going around. It's not that big of a deal. It's just one is portraying confidence. The other is portraying caution and neither one of them are wrong. It's just right now, I think America is looking at optimism and confidence versus caution because, hey, a lot of people have been out of work for two months and they're ready to get this thing rolling again. So yep. it's just there's a lot that can happen between now and November, certainly. Um, and, and in my mind, it's sort of a toss up. But I don't think Democrats are helping their case right now. All right. Nice job of uh, some analysis there, Jr. Very good. Uh, let's look at Georgia real quickly before we go to break. From the story that was written about Georgia yesterday, here, here's uh, what it says. As of Wednesday, the seven-day moving average of new cases was 242. That's down from 773 on April 29th. The seven-day moving average of deaths was 12, down sharply from 34 on April 29th. According to Georgia State Health Department, hospitalizations in the state stood at 1,125 on Wednesday. That's a decline from 1,500 on May 1st, according to the Georgia Emergency Management Agency. So they are on the downward side of the curve, and yet everybody was saying they were opening up too quickly in Georgia but the numbers do not support it. We'll talk further about that. And can't go a whole show uh, with JR without talking about Nancy Pelosi. We'll talk about Nancy <laughs> Pelosi when we come back. And I'm going to play a clip from Senator Kennedy, uh, Senator Kennedy uh, from Louisiana that I just love. I mean, it, it is one of the funniest clips I've heard. He just... He just destroys Pelosi in the clip. We'll talk about it when we get back. Here on the Dave Ellswick Show, Traffic and Weather, we do it together. 
every time we go to break. So let's do it now. Here's your traffic on 101.1 FM, The Answer. All right. We've got a thunderstorm that we might see today. They're saying uh, scattered thunderstorms, widely scattered. I mean, right now it looks like the chance of rain is about 40%. So you got a 60% chance you're not going to see any. But if it rains, expect that you could get some, some heavy rain out of it. All right, so Pelosi yesterday uh, shows up uh, to uh, say, hey, look at this. Uh, I've been uh, doing my social distancing. I've been, I've been sitting at home. I was talking to uh, Congressman Hill yesterday, and I asked him if he thought she sat down and wrote this new piece of legislation of 1,800 pages for a $3 trillion stimulus package while she was on a high of chocolate ice cream from her $26,000 freezer. And uh, he said he wasn't sure if that was what happened or not. But there's no doubt to me that I think her sugar was so high uh, she was hallucinating and came up with this $3 trillion. Senator Kennedy of uh, Louisiana uh, was not as nice as me. Here's what he had to say about it. Louisiana Senator John Kennedy. Senator, I don't want anyone else to die. I don't want anyone else to get sick. Nobody does. This is, this was particularly rough. But we did learn from the workers in the grocery stores where I am, they didn't get sick. They wore masks. They wore gloves. They stocked the shelves. They fed the people in New York and Long Island. We learned that if it wasn't for the manufacturers of medical equipment, New York was done. We would we'd have, would have lost many more lives. We learned from Florida, if you focus on older people and sick people, that you do a lot better than New York that sends COVID-19 patients into nursing homes. That was dumb. Well, not, none of us, Sean, wants anyone to die. I don't think any of us, not those of us in good faith, want to see permanent damage done to our economy. That's why I'm so disappointed in Speaker Pelosi's bill. I think it will set us back. And in my... Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, in my opinion, the speaker has moved from folly to farce. And when I saw it, it reminded me of that old Jack Nicholson line, uh, go sell crazy somewhere else. We're all stocked up here. Um, It's not a serious or mature effort to legislate. It's dead as fried chicken in the Senate. Um, It's dead as fried chicken with the American people once they find out what's in it. She knows that. And everybody who has a brain above a single-cell organism knows that. It's just political pageantry, and I'm I'm just very disappointed. It's going to set us back. There you go. That's what Senator Kennedy had to say. Everybody understands this is ridiculous if they've got a brain bigger than a single-cell animal. I thought that was pretty good. That and don't come selling crazy here. We're all sold up. (laughs) That's spot on, I'm telling you. And here's the thing, too. And, again, this is where I think, you know, you take the president out of the equation and you look at sort of our our governors, which I like to do, obviously, having worked for one for – uh, for a handful of years, um, but I do think that there's there's something to be said of sort of that on the ground. You know, every single day you're you're talking with your local legislators and the people and your local businesses, so you have a really good pulse of your economy and state. Um, but what these Republican governors and these Republican leaders 
uh, I think, have an opportunity to do is show that, hey, listen, we took this seriously. We put in place all of these parameters, but we did it with a balance uh, of, you know, keeping the public safe and uh, keeping an economy at least prop up to a point when we're ready to roll again. It's there. Uh, and I think that uh, the good senator was was spot on um, in that, you know, you've got a lot of Republican governors who are not, cl- including Governor Asa Hutchinson, who are not clamoring for a second sort of tranche uh, for the states and that there doesn't need to be a bailout for the states. The states will figure it out. And that's conservative governing uh, and not saying that the federal government needs to come in and pour millions or trillions more uh, into some aid package because the Democrats are trying to buy a few cheap votes. Uh, and that's exactly what's going on right now with, with Pelosi and gang up there. They're throwing money at the problem, thinking it's going to fix it. And the only thing that's going to fix it is that balance that I just spoke about. Uh, you know, I think Governor Hutchinson, we've all paid attention to his daily uh, news briefings. I think he's done, uh, you know, people, Dave, people are, you know, tend to forget this, maybe not here in Arkansas, but nationally, how much fire Governor Hutchinson came under uh, about not shutting down the economy entirely, right? Not issuing a stay-at-home order. He uh, pushed back against that uh, every day, and it was national media. He was on national news organizations, and they just continued to say, Governor, why aren't you doing this? Well, come to find out, you didn't need to do it. And Arkansas was one of two states uh, where, where they had uh, the biggest decreases, and that was Arkansas and Wyoming, um, and that had had consistent decreases. Um, and that's according to a CNN poll and map. So uh, it, it, I just think that the governors have a real opportunity here to show that this is what real leadership looks like. There can be a balance. There doesn't have to be this knee-jerk reaction where there's one extreme to another. Um, and, you know, and again, on top of that, they can say, hey, listen, we don't need to be bailed out. We're going to figure things out. We're going to cut our state's budget. Uh, we're going to keep essential services where we can. Uh, we're going to carve out some other things and just show real leadership at a time where America drastically wants to see it, uh, especially at the local level. level. Uh, and with Democrats, you know, we've got Democrats who I think there's some that are doing a pretty good job, like Andrew Cuomo in a situation like New York. But at the same time, you've got governors like Gavin Newsom who are afraid to walk outside their front door until the end of 2020. Uh, and that's not going to help anybody, and specifically not going to help the California economy, which we all know was already suffering, uh, you know, giant holes uh, before 2020. Uh, and so, you know, there's a good opportunity for Republicans to show what it looks like to be good leaders. There's a great opportunity for Democrats uh, to lose a uh, pretty large footing heading into November because. Uh, they're too afraid to pull the trigger as far as getting people back to work and a healthier economy. So we'll yeah, it's looking that way to me that they're going to lose footing amongst the people because they're they're just you know there's one thing to be uh, cautious. There's another thing to uh, to be overly cautious, and I think they're being overly cautious. And I also believe, and some people won't say this because I think people are afraid to say it, I think some of these Democrat governors are 
are doing this to keep the economy down. I honestly believe that. I think they go, you know, I don't know where we'll be when the election's over, but if we get the White House, then we can fix it. So I think that's a lot of what's going on here, and it concerns me that the partisanship in this country has gotten to a point where people are willing to allow the country to suffer when the country doesn't need to suffer. Just uh, just my thoughts on that. So uh, um, you may not feel that way, but I do. <laughs> no, no, I think you're exactly right. Now, look, there's a couple couple of quick things. Uh, Republicans picked up a big seat in California in that special election. Um, and just to put this in you know perspective for your listeners, that's the first time that, that I believe Republicans had flipped a Democratic seat in California since 1998. That's correct. Uh, you'll have Democrats that turn around and say, well, this was a special election. There wasn't a whole lot of turnout. That those are the Republicans that came out. Either way, that's a huge deal uh, going into a 2020 national election. Um, you know, and then, and secondly, Dave, to hit on what you said, I, I completely agree with you. This has turned into a very divisive issue, the coronavirus. In any other time in our country's history, whether it was 9-11 uh, uh, um, you know, the initial stages of a war, there's a mass shooting, whatever it is, it has a tendency of bringing people together um, for the most part. This has had sort of an opposite effect. We're now two months in. It's starting to push us apart. And you're starting to see, you know, on both sides, using this as a political tool. But Democrats especially are starting to use this as a political tool and people are starting to notice that. And as you mentioned, there are some governors that are probably holding down the economy to a degree. I'm not saying all of them, for sure. I think the vast majority do want their states to get back on track. Uh, and it, it's good for the bottom line and the state's budget. But there are some, and there are those in Congress, and I believe Nancy Pelosi is part of this, you know, cabal, uh, that basically know that they can win the White House if the economy continues to falter. And All right. I think we're going to continue to see that. All right. We're, we're out of time. As Senator Kennedy said, Nancy Pelosi, folly to farce. JR, thanks so much for being with us. We'll see you again next Thursday. News is next. Right after the news, the governor joins us on the Dave Ellswick Show. to the second hour of a Thursday show, and uh, we had a very special guest for you this first uh, half hour of uh, the 7 o'clock time uh, frame. Most of you that are uh, going to work or making your way into your jobs at this time, got to be there around 8 o'clock. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about uh, where we're at as a state, and the best way to find out where we're at as, as a state is to talk to the man who... Uh, 
you know, makes those decisions. And that happens to be uh, Governor Hutchinson. And Governor Hutchinson is on with us now. Governor, thanks for the time. I appreciate you giving us the time because I know to say that you're you're busy is you're probably busier than a, a one-armed man in a paper hanging contest right now. But uh, you know, you got a lot of you got a lot of decisions you got to make from day to day, and a lot of uh, information you have to digest and decide what you're going to do. Well, Dave, it's uh, great to be with you today, and thank you for the opportunity to talk about uh, the challenges that we face as a state, but also the incredible spirit that uh, we have in Arkansas and how everybody has uh, pulled together during uh, challenging times, and and uh, these are uh, challenging, uh, difficult times. Uh, I, you know, became governor because I wanted to create jobs and grow our economy. We did that for, you know, five, six years uh, solid. And all of a sudden, uh, this virus hits and, uh, you know, it's a different world that you face. And I'm grateful for the experience I had at the Homeland Security because that uh, helps me to have the experience of being through a national crisis. And uh, but uh this has been extraordinary to experience and to lead through, and we're not through it yet. So we got more work to do and uh, got to bring our economy back uh, roaring again. Well, let me ask you, I'm, this is something that uh, uh, interests me. I'm sure it interests my uh, listeners as well. We see you do, you know, when you're doing the pressers, when you're on uh, our local news and at times national news talking about what the state of Arkansas is up to and, and how we're combating the, the COVID-19 virus. But we don't get to see what goes on behind the scenes when, you know, your war room, basically, I'm sure you have one, get together all the all the people who are making these decisions and you all start sharing your thoughts and your concerns. Has it been a fairly smooth process or has there been, you know, uh, some discussion uh, that some people want to go this way and other people want to go another way. And then, you know, you got to be like Solomon. Uh, you, you've got to make the decision. You know, that uh, probably surprises people, but, uh, you know, there's been a lot of unity uh, between uh, myself and uh, the Department of Health uh, in terms of of balancing uh, protecting public health, but also not just uh, killing the economy at the same time and and uh, creating unnecessary misery and unemployment numbers. And so Dr. Smith is a very uh, practical person. He's We're very blessed to have him as a nationally recognized infectious disease expert. He, he understands this. And uh, and so he brings that experience there, but he's also a very practical and he cares about people and, and their lives. And so uh, we we work together very, very well. Now, you look at the broad, broader uh, medical community uh, that uh, gives us advice. Sure, there's differencing opinions and it's and it primarily is, uh, you know, how how long do you uh, keep restrictions on? And, of course, I, I like lifting the restrictions because I know we've got to uh, get back to full production in our economy. And there's always different viewpoints on that. Uh, but we've really worked together well. If you look behind the scenes and, and uh, how we get prepared for that daily briefing, uh, we start uh, early in the, in the morning. And so uh, I'll you know, have a conversation uh, meeting early with uh, Dr. Smith. Uh, we always have an agenda talking about uh, where we are in our testing, where we are in terms of uh, 
of uh, what uh, uh, you know businesses uh, we need to uh, let go again and, and try to move our economy forward. But it's also about the numbers that we have. And just like yesterday, you know, we're all focused on Forest City and and some of the uh, what we see is beginning of a community spread there that uh, we got to really nip and make sure that we control that. Uh, whenever we go through the weekend and we see uh, uh, people in our state that's not uh, following the guidelines and the admonitions to socially distance, you know, uh, I sometimes call up a uh, business, the uh, uh, headquarters that might be uh, out of state somewhere and say, uh, you know, you got you need to follow, uh, do a better job of setting an example here in Arkansas. So there's a lot of different aspects to it, but right now uh, we're focused on really the uh, the future and making sure that as we uh, get back to full economic production that we're prepared for next fall. Uh, We all want to have normal lives. We want to have uh, uh, sports. We want to have a school. But we have to have a plan to protect public safety, and that's why we're developing the uh, capability of testing, uh, tracking and then isolation and uh, getting back to business whenever we might have a positive uh, outbreak somewhere. So we're developing that strategy and uh, working hard doing it uh, every day. You know, something that a lot of people don't understand is that you get a blizzard of paperwork, I'm sure, showing you, uh, you know, data, information to make your decisions on. Uh how do you keep that data from paralyzing you from making a decision? Some people, it paralyzes. It's so much data, they can't really uh, consume it and come up with a, uh, a policy that they, can, that they can work with and the people can work with. How do you make sure you can do that? Well, the key thing is you make a, you make a decision. Uh, what uh, uh, kills leadership is, is uh, slowness uh, in making a decision. And you want to be thoughtful about it. You want to get all the uh, counsel and uh, different viewpoints. But then you've got to decide. You got to make a decision. You got to announce that, and uh, and and you live with the consequences of it. Uh, and uh, that's how we've proceeded. Uh, we don't hesitate to make a decision when we get all the information. You know, the 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 frustrating uh, part of it is that there's so much in this fight that's out of your control. Uh, there's a lot that you can control, uh, but uh, you know, for for a long time, the first uh, challenge was just getting the uh, resources to do adequate testing, which are the reagents. And so, I found myself on the phone uh, very consistently with the uh, White House and and with uh, our our task force in Washington, uh, trying to get more resources for Arkansas. We've actually solved that problem. And uh, and now, you know, you focus your data on uh, trying to get to phase two. You know, we've we have met the criteria to opening our businesses, lifting the restrictions. And let me emphasize that I took a lot of heat, <laughs> but I did. We did not uh, do a shelter in place. And yeah, I, I want to talk to you about that. Let me jump in. You took a lot of heat from uh, the national media. I, I know you were doing a lot of interviews on national media, and they were attacking you as uh, being one of only eight states that didn't have a, you know, hunker-down-in-place kind of, uh, of uh, order. And you said that it just wasn't necessary in our state. Our state was different. What was different about us? 
Well, of course, we don't have the density of population that they have in New York, but uh, I'm not sure that the shelter in place just didn't make any sense for us. And I don't want to be critical of another governor and the decisions they make that are unique to them. But uh, I don't want to create another 100,000 unemployed unless you're going to get some benefit from it from a public health standpoint. And the data was never there to support that. And so once you make that decision, uh, you know, you've got to fight through all the criticism because there was the national pressure. I mean, it was the pressure uh, from uh, the comments of Dr. Fauci, uh, who I love and, and who likes what we're doing here in Arkansas, but he made comments that he didn't understand why everybody didn't shelter in place. Right. And so that, you know, built pressure, not just nationally, but here in Arkansas, too, because people in Arkansas were afraid. Uh, they saw what was happening in New York, and they said, why aren't we doing that? We need to do that. And, and so there was a lot of pressure to do it, but I followed uh, the science, and I followed what uh, made sense to do, and we did a, a lot. We, we targeted our closures to those in-person businesses, but we didn't close all the retail shops. And it's really funny now that, uh, you know, we're all moving back and lifting restrictions and everything. Uh, people say, well, you know, why isn't this shop open? Well, I never closed them. It's just that they closed themselves because of a lack of consumer demand. And that's what you see happen to the marketplace. When people have the facts, they start making good good judgments as to where they want to go and how safe it is. And uh, businesses make good judgments as well. So we've got a lot more information out there now. But we took a lot of heat, uh, but we made the right decision for Arkansas, and I think it allow us to come back quicker economically. All right. We've got to take a break. Let's do that. Let's get to our traffic and our weather, and then we'll be back and continue our discussion with the governor. I'd like to talk to you about unemployment and uh, where we're at in the state. Uh, we're expecting to hit somewhere around 36 million people unemployed in the country today when the uh, the numbers come out. Uh, that uh, That is very near being the percentage of the Great Depression. We'll talk about all of that when we get back here on the Dave Ellswick Show. Our special guest, Governor Asa Hutchinson, on the Dave Ellswick Show. Traffic is right now. All right, back with the uh, governor. Governor Asa Hutchinson is our special guest this half hour. Coming up in the next half hour, State uh, Representative Brant Smith is going to join us. We're going to be talking with him. Uh, Governor, unemployment has kind of a death grip on the country right now. We're expecting to see another 2.5, 2.7 million people have applied for unemployment this last week. We're up close, and after that report probably will be at 36 million unemployed. Uh, that is a very serious place to be here in this country. How are we here in the state of Arkansas? Can you kind of bring us up to date specifically for our state? Uh, well, those numbers are staggering, uh, and it's just we have never lived through anything like this in our country economically. In this kind of downturn, it looks more ex uh, difficult than the Great Recession that we had. In terms of our state, uh, we're going to beat uh, what those projections are. Uh, people are going back to work. Uh, they're hurting and they need need jobs, and there are some jobs that are available out there. And so this is different when the whole economy collapses because even now you look at uh, – 
you know, Amazon's building a uh, facility here in Little Rock. You know, that's ongoing. You know, they're hiring. Right. Uh, Walmart and, and different companies are doing well in this environment. The food processing, all of those uh, are so essential for us, and they're doing well. Uh, I saw today that uh, Michael Paco, an, an Arkansas economist, predicted our state unemployment would reach 17%. Now, I think it's too early to know. Uh, I hope it doesn't go that deep and that far. Uh, the national uh, unemployment rate is predicted to be 19.6%. So Arkansas is predicted to beat that national unemployment. But I want to even do better than that, and I hope that we don't reach those levels. Uh, we had uh, last week uh, about 90,000 unemployment checks go out. We have over well over 100,000 unemployment checks that will go out uh, each week, and there, it has increased a little bit. But I expect that to flatten out. Uh, and, you know, the I've been very pleased. It's, uh, you know, you, you can always debate as to exactly how it should work. But the federal government did jump in and put stimulus money in there. They put money in people's pockets, and that kept the spending going. And I think over time that that will make a difference. And uh, that money uh, in people's pockets uh, continues to drive the economy. Uh, so, uh, you know, a good, another good example is that, uh, uh, you know, we've got a company that's ready to make an announcement of uh, job creation, uh, relocating in Arkansas and building a facility here. Uh, they just can't travel here right now. <laughs> and so okay. we, can't, we can't make the announcement. But I think our economy is ready to surge again once we get uh, this under control and back on track. So do you feel that we will have a, a V recovery? Do you think we're going to bottom out and then when uh, people start getting back to work and, and states reopen, are we going to zoom straight up again? Uh, it won't be straight up again. It'll be a little bit lower than the normal V, but it will be an upper trajectory. I do think there's probably some uh, longer-term consequences to uh, even this uh, two- to three-month uh, slowdown that we've had. Uh, there's some underlying challenges that will happen there, but it will be uh, a, a strong uptick that we will see uh, coming uh, late this summer and early this fall. And uh, we're going to work hard to make it uh, uh, a, a bigger climb than uh, what you would anticipate now. People All right. Well, that, that, that's good work. news. Yeah, yeah that's well, good news. How do, you, how do you feel about the partisanship? I mean, typically, when the nation faces a dire situation like this, uh, the two parties tend to work together, I won't say kumbaya type, but they, they tend to have the nation in the best for the nation in, in sight. That I, I've gotten the feeling that is not the case right now in our nation. I, I feel like red states are pushing to get the economy going. And there's a lot of blue states that are not. And they see it as a way to, to hurt this president. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, it's at first uh, there was a great deal of bipartisan uh, efforts to uh, get us on track and to fight the virus. I think that has somewhat diminished over time. But let's break it down a little bit. Uh, first, uh, you know, the governors and working with uh, President Trump has been very bipartisan. 
you see uh, President Trump today. He's meeting with, uh, or this week, he's meeting with Governor Polaris of, uh, of uh, Colorado. Uh, in the White House. He's met with uh, John Bell Edwards, Democrat governor from Louisiana in the White House. You know, we're on the phone. we got Democrats and Republican governors there. And uh, you ought to hear Governor Murphy of Democrat of New Jersey singing the praises of the president. I mean, uh-huh. uh, there's been a good bipartisan effort between the White House and the governors. Uh, you see it a little bit different in Congress. And now you're starting to see that divide between let's open up and let's uh, keep the shelter in place in, in, in place. I don't hope that's not political. Uh, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, but there's certainly and it could just be a philosophical difference. But you do see some of that developing uh, out in the country. Uh, but. Uh, you know, the it really illustrates the fact that uh, governors can work so much easier in a bipartisan fashion than what we see in in Washington, because that divide in this latest stimulus bill is very clear between what the uh, House is going to be offering and what I think the Republican Senate will be proposing. All right. Last question for you. And uh, we're down to about a minute to go here, Governor. Dr. Smith, I'd like you to talk a little bit about him and how important he's been uh, during this time of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak. Well, first of all, just the pressure and the work strain. I mean, whenever this started, everybody knew this was going to be a long haul. And so, you know, he uh, he, he's really got a lot of endurance because this has been uh, a challenge for him uh, just physically uh, with all of his team at the constant pressure. Uh, but secondly, he's just a person of faith. He's a, a uh, uh, person with uh, uh, good instincts, and uh, he's my right hand in terms of looking at the data and that's what he does. He studies the data. We joke a lot, a little bit. Uh, I want good data. He's just wanting honest data. <laughs> right. But uh, and, and it's just a joke because we do look at the science of it. But he's just been a great partner. We couldn't get through this uh, uh, very well without him and his team that has worked so hard at the Department of Health. They uh, work through the night doing testing. Uh, they are building a new infrastructure. Just think about our tracking capability going from three up to close to 200 in personnel and tracking and uh, building that kind of infrastructure. Dr. Smith's led that and his team have worked so hard. I just am grateful for them and all of Arkansas should be and continue to pray for them. Thank you, Governor. We appreciate your time. I've got to move on. We'll talk to you again in the near future. Right now, though, it's time for Rush Limbaugh here on 101.1. Back with you, Dave Ellswick's show. Uh, My thanks to the Governor uh, for sitting down and uh, talking to us today here on the Dave Ellswick show. Some interesting things that he had to say. Pretty positive guy, thinks that, uh, you know, we're going to be much lower uh, here in Arkansas in unemployment than what is going on nationally uh, by maybe as much as 2%. Uh, Right now, I think the way it's looking at about 1.6% less on uh, the unemployment side. Good stuff talking about what was going on uh, with the virus, how they made their decisions, uh, you know, and how they kept themselves from being paralyzed by data. That's a very real deal where you can get so much information 
uh, and you read so many uh, facts and figures and things that support and things that detract and whatnot that it's very difficult to make any kind of decision. And as the governor said, you got to make a decision. You, you can't let yourself be paralyzed by it. And uh, he's made some decisions. Uh, not all of them have been popular. Uh, it's impossible to be completely popular during the time of what's going on right now. Uh, he is, as you can tell, has high regards for Dr. Smith. And uh, he's listening closely to Dr. Smith because Dr. Smith is a specialist in infectious diseases. So he's uh, following what the uh, uh, the doctor has been telling him from the Department of Health. All right, let's get back uh, and talk to our next guest. He's uh, called in. He's ready to be uh, on the show. And a uh, guy that I feel is a, a good friend to the show uh, is uh, Brant Smith, state representative up from the Jonesboro area. And uh, Representative Smith, thanks for joining us today on the Dave Ellswick Show. Uh, how are things going for uh for the representative right now are things going well oh yeah dave everything is uh great around my home and in my neighborhood uh, we still have a lot of people that are not back to work yet and they're eager to go back to work but uh my neighbors sit out on the front yard of their homes uh in the driveway and interact and play with their kids there's more uh-huh. walkers through the neighborhood and uh i think we're just an, an example of what's happening up here in the entire community well there's good, some good things going on i don't know if uh you heard about the good news coming out of uh out of georgia let me bring you up to date on it uh i gotta find my my story here so I can give you this information because, you know, the governor of Georgia took a big beating uh, because he opened up his state and they said too soon and yada, yada, yada. Well, as of Wednesday, the seven day moving average in new cases was 242. That's down from 773 on April 29th. The seven day moving average of deaths was down to 12. Uh, that is moving down from April 29th, where they had 34, uh, according to the state health department. Hospitalizations in the state uh, stood at uh, 1,125 on Wednesday. That's a decline from 1,500 on May 1st. And uh, according to the Georgia Emergency Management Agency, so uh, good uh, things uh, things are going on in Georgia. Uh, it looks like we're starting to move forward and p- people starting to open up. Uh, are you feeling positive about this? Do you think that phase two will be just down the road or is it going to take us quite a while to get into phase two? Well, I'm hoping that we can move toward phase two quickly. Uh, we don't want to we don't want to rush ahead of uh, our declining numbers, but it looks like our numbers look pretty good. I know Craighead County has seen a little more spike in some numbers, but the recovery rates look very good. And so uh, while our folks up here may show symptoms uh, with just self-quarantining and and uh, following their personal doctor's orders, I think we're looking really good. And uh, 
I've been out and about. I've been talking with people through my window, open window of my truck, and I've had a lot of phone calls. And because we're a a work-oriented state, we love our jobs, we produce, manufacture, put seed in the ground, I think a lot of people are just ready to uh, maybe even risk a little bit to uh, get back to what they consider their normal. And uh, I'm encouraging them to uh, be smart, but to uh, maybe take baby steps toward reopening our area up here. Well, you know, I've I've been talking about that, uh, the whole risk thing on my show, and you take a bigger risk almost getting in your car and driving uh, on any given day than you do that you're going to go out and get the coronavirus, get infected, and die from it. Uh, you know, we do a lot of things that are risky, but they don't seem risky to us because we do them every day. COVID-19 yeah. is not like that. It just came out of kind of like nowhere, and uh, it's got everybody on it. It got everybody on edge. But now, uh, you know, that 2.2 million that they were saying was going to die in our country, we've not gotten anywhere near that. And uh, people are saying maybe this was a whole lot of uh, hooey about nothing. I don't totally think that it was nothing, but I think that maybe we overreacted. What do, what do you think, well, sir? I agree. I agree. I think, uh, well, Gayla and I, we were living in China back several years ago during the SARS pandemic. And, uh, it, you know, it, it's similar to what we are experiencing here, but fear has a way of just immobilizing people, especially uh-huh. when it's an unknown, uh, such as the COVID-19 uh, virus. But We've tried to maintain normalcy. Uh, If we needed to go somewhere to pick up groceries or yesterday I was at one of our dealerships up here getting my oil changed in my vehicle and everyone in in the waiting area practiced social distancing. And uh, we had great conversations. Uh, I think we're missing some of that, uh, I guess, just being in public with other people and uh we're going to get through this we're going to be fine i know there are families that are struggling because of lack of work some of them don't qualify for any of the grant money or the uh finances that have have been uh posted through the federal government as well as our state uh, workforce development unemployment insurance they don't qualify but there's an air of optimism up here that really tells a lot about the people in northeast Arkansas. Yeah, I get that air as well here in central Arkansas. As I, you know, I talk to people, I look at my Facebook, I look at other people's Facebooks, and it seems to me that the average Arkansan, for the most part, the majority are ready to try to put this behind us and and move forward. I just had the governor on with me for a half hour, and we sat and talked, and we are talking about the the decision-making process that he's gone through uh, and that he didn't shut the state down like a lot of other states did. And he took took a lot of heat about that on national media. It was um, amazing to me how much heat he took about that. 
But he said, Arkansas is not New York. Arkansas is not California. Arkansas is Arkansas. And he tried to do things that were uh, Arkansan in nature, I guess is the best way to put it. And he talked great about Dr. Smith, the head of, uh, of the health department. Your thoughts about how the governor has done. I mean, I, I'm sure you signed that letter that went to him saying that he had done a good job, but he's you guys think that he needs to move a little bit faster on reopening the, uh, the state to business? Well, and, and just, uh, just to let you know, I may have missed an opportunity to sign that letter uh, because I don't check email every hour, uh, <laughs> even though I'm working from home. But uh, I am fully supportive of uh, the actions of our governor, and I'm really and proud that uh, he did not issue an emergency stay-home order and just uh, put us all on lockdown. And and the benefit of that is uh, we've had so many people showing volunteer spirit uh, by making masks up here for our frontline workers. And uh, I was at one of the sites where volunteers were sewing and putting these masks together Camfield up here donated the uh the uh, filter i think they said it was over a hundred dollars a yard and they donated 60 something yards of this fabric this material and uh-huh. uh, there were other facilities that did the same thing so uh, the governor's done the right thing and dr nate smith has been uh I think optimistically cautious because he sees data that I don't see, but uh, I have no no problem with what they've tried to do. Uh, this is so new that you know when we say experts, um, I think in some cases they're they will be experts, but right now it's been so new. Uh, we didn't have anybody that had ever dealt with COVID-19 before. So uh, we're blazing new ground but because Arkansas is predominantly an agriculture. That right. benefited us so much. All right. We're going to come back, talk further to the state representative. He's on a cell phone. That's why he uh, drops out ever so often. He's not near a hard line, but that's fine. We're hearing him. We, we can make out his uh, answers. we got more questions for him. He's got more answers coming up after the news at the top of the hour. Uh, former Georgia Congressman Jack Kingston will join us here on the Dave Ellswick Show. And then we'll round it out at 835. And we're going to have uh, none other than Robert Steinbach on with us for about 24 minutes here on the uh, the Dave Ellswick Show. Don't forget about PI Roofing. PI Roofing is ready to take care of your roof for you. Take that off of your shoulders. Take that off of your mind. Uh, you know, get yourself focused in on getting through COVID-19, keeping your family safe, uh, getting back to work, things of that nature. And uh, PI Roofing to take care of uh, that structure that's over your head. Know that your roof 
is the final defense against outside elements, and they'll come out and uh, walk your roof and take a look at it and tell you if there's anything wrong with it. They'll work with your insurance company if there is, and uh, you'll only end up paying your deductible. That's PI Roofing, piroofing.com, or call them, 707-3551. All right, I want to remind you that uh, a Forbes magazine article said that 96% of Americans, and that's a sizable majority, 96%, claimed their Social Security benefits at the wrong time. And uh, that mistake cost them an average of $111,000. Can you afford to lose that kind of money? I know I can't. Uh, you can learn how you could avoid this with a free Social Security analysis from David Lucas Financial right here in North Little Rock. If you've saved more than $250,000, you've not filed for Social Security, be one of the first 10 callers to schedule your free analysis now at 501-222-3315. This free analysis can be done over the phone or video conference. Call 501-222-3315. That's 501-222-3315. All right, back with us uh, is uh, State Representative Brant uh, Smith joins us, and uh, we're talking to him about, uh, you know, where the state is right now. You know, we, we've got less money coming into the coffers now than we did uh, just a few months ago, uh, Representative. But it seems to me that the state government has been working just fine uh does that mean that perhaps when the 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 next session comes up we get uh, we get to uh, january and the 2021 general assembly uh comes together again that uh, there's enough people that understand that our government is doing its job without that additional about 15 percent in funding uh, or do you think that people are willing to keep it at keep it at that or are they going to want to replace that money as fast as possible well my concern dave is that uh, there will be a push to recoup that 15 percent cut that uh, the i think that was the maximum cut you know overall but uh, we are functioning and uh, we've pulled funds the governor's pulled funds from multiple sources and uh, I think we're working just fine. As a matter of fact, I was wondering if some of those funds might not be recovered by uh, perhaps the legislature, the executive branch, and then maybe some of the agency secretaries voluntarily taking a small cut in their in their. Uh, I guess wage or uh, you know their finances. Yeah, if if it's possible, you know, if that's if we have to have the money back, uh, maybe we could voluntarily take a small cut, say two percent or three percent. I haven't done the math, but uh, I I think we're finding out that we can have a leaner uh, government and still function. Well, you you guys are not that far away from uh, starting to do your budgetary 
due diligence again. And uh, is there going to be a closer look at uh, state government uh, programs to determine, well, did we really need this program or not, and perhaps look at ways to shift money around? I think we're going to do that. Now, I don't sit on joint budget, so uh, I'm not privy to all of the discussions. Uh, a lot of a lot of discussions are kind of ad hoc uh, as we go into committees, and so I'm sure there are legislators that are already beginning to look at at the numbers and try to determine uh, what essential services really are essential as opposed to some of the programs that uh, could function with a more lean budget. So uh, I'm hoping we can do this and do it right and not not have to cut services, but we may have to uh, become better at providing those services to our most needy across the state. Yeah, I mean, there's a good possibility you all can – look and say, you know, this is a great uh, policy that we have, but we don't need X, Y, Z amount of dollars to to make it work. We can cut the dollars, and maybe then you can move those dollars into something that we desperately need to move into, and that's like broadband and getting broadband right. available all across the state. I mean, uh, uh, as I always say, that uh, the easy thing is to tax uh, you know, uh, people who are, are uh, you know, don't want to tax govern. And, and this is governing. This is figuring out of doing what you want to do with the amount of money that you already have. Right. I agree. And, you know, we have so many great people uh, in state government. Some of them have been working in their positions for years. They're smart. They're committed to helping make our state better. And uh, the thing that's kind of been impressed upon me is, uh, and I I was elected in 2014, uh, how every year, you know, people came needing more money, more money. And uh, that's always the case. But the thing is, we've, we've never really tried to do big cuts before but we've been forced to do them now and uh, we're seeing that we can function on less and uh you know the money may be allocated in an appropriation or not allocated but uh, appropriated but if the funds don't come in we have to uh take a step back and and really look at how to do our job more efficiently and effectively to meet the uh, needs of our people. I, I agree. State Representative uh, Brant Smith, thanks for the time. By the way, you got through uh, uh, a couple of months ago, got through the primary. And uh, do you have to face anybody in the general, or uh, can we just continue to call you? you got to face nope, somebody. I okay. Do. I've All got right. a general election, but I'm, I'm sorry we didn't get to the uh, University of Arkansas, Simon, Dr. Simon Ong. Uh, and the Chinese connections to our universities. But uh, money is, uh, you know, the love of money is the root of all evil. That's right. And as long as as money is offered, there will be people who will take it and do, you know, you become 
servant to those who provide. So there's always strings attached. But I'm hoping that we'll do a deep dive and look across our state to see if there are other incidents like this and uh, remedy those. Um, I I don't want to just see our our professors that have taken money just sent back to their own home country. I think we ought to hold them accountable right here in the good old USA. I agree with you, uh, Representative, and let me get you on in the next couple of weeks, and we'll specifically talk about that because I've been talking to a lot of people about it. This whole thousand talent uh, program that the Chinese has is nothing more than a direct outreach by the communist uh, uh, Chinese Communist Party trying to change the way people think about communism here in our country. And uh, UCA has a Confucius Institute on their campus, and it's been it's known. I mean, it's a, it's the government knows that they're using it to reach right. into our 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 culture. With that said, I will let you go because we're out of time. Thank you so much. We'll get you okay. back on next couple of weeks. Appreciate you. All right, Dave. Thank All right. You. Talk My to you later. Bye bye. All righty. State Representative Brant Smith here on the Dave Ellswick Show. When we come back, former Georgia Congressman Jack Kingston is going to talk to us. Is uh, is the partisanship such with the COVID-19 that the Democrat Party's trying to keep the economy down? We're going to talk to him about it when we come back here on the Dave Ellswick Show. hour for a Thursday. Have a great guest joining us right now on the phone from the great state of Georgia, uh, former Georgia Congressman Jack Kingston. He's been with us before. Great straight shooter here on the Dave Ellswick Show. Uh, Congressman, let me uh, ask you this. Your, your, uh, Your governor has reopened your state and it's looking really good. Let me give you some facts here that I got right in front of me. As of yesterday, the seven-day moving average of new cases was 242. That's down from 773 on April 29th. The seven-day moving average of deaths was 12. That's down sharply from 34 on April 29th. That's according to the state health department. Hospitalizations in the state stood at 1,125 on Wednesday. That's a decline from 1,500. On uh, May 1st, that according to the Georgia Emergency Management Agency, if we go back just a couple of weeks ago when the governor said that he was going to reopen the state, you would have thought that half the people in the state of Georgia were going to die. That has not proven the case. Uh, It has proven that the, the, the governor had a good grasp of what was going on in the state of Georgia. Your thoughts? Well, another thing about it, Dave, is leadership is making bold and tough decisions 
The cop-out right now is to be a coward, as we're seeing in so many of the blue states around the country, that the the governors are saying, oh, well, somebody might get sick. Well, you know, every time you um, drive a car, you risk your life. Every time you walk across the street, you risk your life. Um, what, what Brian Kemp did was look at the data, and he also looked at our capacity. And that's one thing that is missing in the national debate is that our capacity is a lot different than it was in January and February. We have n 95s we have ventilators now we have more testing we have the hospital um beds ready and 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 people are forgetting that sort of thing the the other thing is we know a lot more we know that you have to wash your hands and um stay away from people and if you have a pre-existing illness don't go out and particularly don't be around younger people who could be carriers and they don't even know it themselves so um but we have to make these decisions 33 million Americans are out of work right now, and and a lot of them are being forced to be out of work, not just uh, voluntary, but, um, you know, we, we see it every day in the, the newspaper how somebody's getting locked up for uh, trying to feed their families. Yeah, it's uh, it's an amazing uh, a statistic. I was talking to Governor Asa Hutchinson on my show at 7 o'clock today, and uh, with the new unemployment numbers that we're expecting uh, today, we're going to have about 18% of uh, the population unemployed here in the, in the United States. Uh, the only time it's ever been higher than that was during the Great Depression. Uh, and it, it just boggles my mind that in a, just a couple of months, we went from one of the greatest economic uh, engines here in the states to to be in where we're at right now. Now, he the governor said he thought it wouldn't be a straight V recovery, but that it would be a, a, a very, very energetic recovery. How do you feel on that? Well, I, you know, I had the honor of serving with Asa and his brother, Tim. And I, I have to say, you've got one of the best, if not the best, um, I'm going to say Georgia has a great delegation, but your uh, congressional delegation in Washington is unbelievable. In fact, it's almost hard to turn on the television without seeing one of them and their leadership. And so, (laughs) you know, but I think what Governor Hutchison is saying is right. He's leaning into it, and he's saying it will be an energetic recovery, but it won't be a V-shape because if you are in interstate commerce and let's say you're driving a a truck across the country there are certain states that are going to have certain laws they're going to be in certain phases of reopening and then you have the local authority that's going to have the final say so on the salad bar at the restaurant or the vending machine or the students going back to class and so it, it is going to be bumpy and i think what we're going to see is some states that take the initiative are going to recover a lot faster um but other states are going to lag behind, and I think that's one of the reasons right now that um, we're seeing some of the politics set in, because the states that are lagging behind, they want the federal bailout. And so the longer they're shut down, the more likelihood they are to get uh, federal spending to make up for their own uh, overspending. And, and I know that uh, Arkansas is a well-run state and has its fiscal house in order, but some of these states that are – um, demanding to to stay closed, they just want the federal bailout because their pension plans are in the tank. Our our guest is former Governor Congressman Kingston from uh, Georgia, and it's good to uh, have him on with us. 
former congressman, pardon me. Uh, let me ask this question. I, a lot of people say, no, Dave, you're overreacting, and I don't think I am. I see blue states, many of them, being very, very slow on reopening, I believe, because they know one of the, if the economy strengthens, and let's say the stock market gets back up to, uh, you know, 28 thousand and people are going back to work by the thousands that the democrats know their chances of replacing the president in the white house are are slim to none right now they say they got a 50 percent chance i don't believe that either but uh i think the president's going to be reelected. but uh, there's no beating him if the economy has healed up to that extent do you think that some of these democrats are trying to hold that back Yes, I do. I believe that they are torpedoing the economy to make it look more chaotic, to make Trump look bad. I think it's sad. I think it's sick that they can hide behind the nanny state mentality of, well, people might get sicker and we may have relapses. Um, But they're not leading. They're just being cowards, hiding beneath their beds. And then they have the nerve and the audacity to say, this is leadership. It's not leadership. It's it's taking a cop out. But um, who do you think can best recover the economy? Donald Trump, who brought us, brought us the strongest economy in the world, or Joe Biden, who can't even remember what he ate for breakfast? Um, yeah, I, no, I agree with that. I mean, there's no confidence that if you look at the Obama-Biden economic plan, you would have no confidence of, of, of a strong recovery under Joe Biden. Um, but the other thing is, Nancy Pelosi's $3 trillion bill, which is really just printing monopoly money. Our children are going to be paying for that for uh, generations to come. But um, what they want to do is bail out these blue states for their fiscal mismanagement. And so that's another reason why they want to stay closed down. But um, I I think it's a sad day in America when politics is playing with people's lives, particularly when you got 33 million unemployed. I got just a few moments left with you. Last night, uh, Senator Kennedy of Louisiana was on with Sean Hannity. I want you to hear what he had to say about Nancy Pelosi. Here's what uh, Kennedy uh, said. Louisiana Senator John Kennedy. Senator, I don't want anyone else to die. I don't want anyone else to get sick. Nobody does. This was, this was particularly rough. But we did learn from the workers in the grocery stores where I am, they didn't get sick. They wore masks. They wore gloves. They stocked the shelves. They fed the people in New York and Long Island. We learned that if it wasn't for the manufacturers of medical equipment, New York was done. We would we'd have, would have lost many more lives. We learned from Florida, if you focus on older people and sick people, that you do a lot better than New York that sends COVID-19 patients into nursing homes. That was dumb. Well, not, none of us, Sean, wants anyone to die. I don't think... Any of us, not those of us in good faith, want to see permanent damage done to our economy. That's why I'm so disappointed in Speaker Pelosi's bill. I think it will set us back. And in my. Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, in my opinion, the Speaker has moved from folly to farce. And when I saw it, It reminded me of that old Jack Nicholson line. 
uh, go sell crazy somewhere else. We're all stocked up here. Um, it's not a serious or mature effort to legislate. It's dead as fried chicken in the Senate. Um, it's dead as fried chicken with the American people once they find out what's in it. She knows that. And everybody who has a brain above a single cell organism knows that. It's just political pageantry, and I'm, I'm, I'm just very disappointed. It's going to set us back. That's saying it pretty clear, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, you get the impression he doesn't <laughs> like the bill. <laughs> you, you yeah. Know, it's interesting, though. When I talked to um, some senators yesterday, um, uh, and including had the opportunity to talk to Ron Johnson's office, um, his chief of staff, uh, you know, they're very busy trying to get this economy going again, and they're also trying to defend the rule of law and the president of the United States. And they're not taking this bill seriously. They're saying, as uh, Senator Kennedy said, it's not a serious effort to address the problems. It's a political document designed for reelection so that her members can go back and say to everybody, oh, yeah, no, we took care of that. We we put money in for you. We put money in for this, that, and the other. Um you know, they're not even talking about there's $25 billion in there for a U.S. post office bailout. There's $20 million for arts and humanities. There's money for voter registration and census in the inner city. There's all kinds of Democrat wish list items that they stuck in that bill. And um, during these economic times, you should not be doing that and calling it an emergency COVID uh, spending bill. Absolutely. Former uh, Georgia Congressman Jack Kingston with us here on the Dave Ellswick Show. We're out of time with him. He's got other interviews to do. Appreciate you, Congressman. Thanks for joining us today in Little Rock and uh, talking about some of these issues that are affecting our country. Well, Dave, it's always great to be with you and keep up the good work. And God bless Arkansas. Y'all are a bright, shining star in our nation. All right. We appreciate you. Thank you, Congressman. Let's get our break in, traffic and weather. Then Robert Steinbach will join us here on the Dave Ellswick Show. All right. We continue. Robert Steinbach joins us. He's a a law professor, of course, over at uh, the UALR Bowen School of Law. His opinions are his and his alone. But uh, Dan Greenberg moved to Washington, D.C. He works within the Trump administration now. And it's really, you know, it was a big loss, I believe, uh, for Arkansas. He was a great uh, state representative when he was uh, over in the House. And uh, he used to do a a website uh, analyzing what was going on in Arkansas. you know, the, you know, as far as uh, this state goes uh, in uh, taxation and things of that nature. And he looked at it from a very conservative angle and he wrote some great articles. Well, that particular website is gone now and it's sorely missed. And so I was happy to hear last night that Robert is starting a uh, website specifically to bring forth these uh, uh an analytical arguments uh, against uh, uh, things that are to the left. And, uh, and Robert, I'm glad to hear this. Tell us a little bit about what you have in mind. Absolutely, uh, Dave. Appreciate it. <clears throat> As you know, Dan Greenberg had that fantastic website, uh, Arkansas Project. And like you say, since he left, uh, it has gone dormant. 
And so Chris Corbett and I decided that we need to fill that void, and we created a site on a site, and it's yeah. Arkansas Impact, all one word, arkansasimpact.blogspot.com. I'll say it one more time, arkansasimpact.blogspot.com. And we are going to do uh, the same type of work, we hope, uh, and certainly hope that the same quality of work that Dan did on his site regarding Arkansas issues. And we've already posted our first substantive post. There's a very important Court of Appeals decision that just came out yesterday, written by Judge Hickson for a majority of the court. In fact, every member of the court, save one, on the Arkansas Freedom of Information Act. And they get it right. The majority does. Uh, What had happened was an attorney by the name of Motal uh, got into a car accident. And so he went down to the police station and said, I'd like to see a copy of the report. And he tried to take a picture of it. And they refused to allow him to take a picture of it because they wanted to charge him $10. He said, well, under the Freedom of Information Act, I'm allowed to inspect it. I'm allowed to copy it. Uh, I'm allowed to request a copy of it. And they said, well, not really. You're allowed to do only one of those, and you have to choose. Meaning huh. you're, allowed to cop- yeah, you're allowed to copy it, but in doing so, not inspect it. I don't know how you, exactly you do that, Dave, by the way, maybe with a blindfold on, uh, maybe uh, with Braille. Uh, so it's ridiculous, right? So he sued. He sued, by the way, Dave, because he can. He sued because he's an attorney. In other words, my, the point I'm bringing out is that the average Joe can't just up and sue. That's the problem here. These bureau hacks interfere with our rights and know full well that most people don't have the opportunity to sue. Well, Motal did. And he gets before Judge Pierce at the trial level. And to my shock and horror, Judge Pierce echoes the ridiculous arguments of the city. He says, get this, Dave, a copy is a copy made on a copy machine. A copy is a copy made on a fax machine, but a copy ain't a copy made on a camera. Wait, what? Why not? By the way, if you understand how a copy machine actually works, you know it's essentially a photograph. Yeah, absolutely. Right? I mean, what, what do you think? There's a whole different technology. There's a lens which takes an image of what you put on the flat surface and projects that image onto a piece of paper. In any event, that's, so he, he Pierce, Judge Pierce, echoes the terrible argument of the city. And the Court of Appeal said, wait, wait, what? And the Court of Appeal said, no. A copy means what you and I and everybody who understands the English language knows what the word copy means. And the legislature doesn't need to list out copy, photograph, facsimile. By the way. The legislator, legislature didn't use the word facsimile, but somehow Pierce found that facsimile is included in the word copy, but photograph is not. So even the claim that, well, they should have said photograph, well, it didn't say facsimile, and you found that one somehow buried in the definition of copy. Uh, so that's not the job of the legislature. In fact, 
It's a job of the court, of the judge. A judge is supposed to look at the word copy and say, what does that word mean to you and me and everybody else? And of course, of course, it includes photograph. And Judge Hickson on the Court of Appeals properly concluded that, and his all one of his colleagues agreed with him. So there's a discussion on Chris and uh, our on on the on the blog site that I mentioned again. I'll say it, ArkansasImpact.blogspot.com, and I think uh, Elizabeth is going to link to it on your Facebook page, Dave. Well, we, rightly so. That's exactly yeah. what we should do. Yeah. And so uh, for those interested in this, uh, take a look at that. And we're going, Chris and I are going to try. It's going to be some effort. And we're going to try to keep up on events important to our Kansans. And we may not get them all, but we're going to try. Yeah, I I don't know if I can tell you a story yet. I'm going to send a text back to the person who sent this to me and uh, ask if I can... I'll, I'll keep his name out of it but he, and, and a company's name out of it, but I want to read this to you. Uh, so mm-hmm. stay tuned. We're going to talk about that here uh, in just a moment. we got Sean Hannity coming up in a moment. And in the next uh, half hour, I'd like to talk to you about this judge in Washington, D.C. This guy. Of course. It, this guy is beyond the pale. This, mm-hmm. this is crazy. He's out there. He's yeah. out there. Yeah, he's way, way out there. Yeah, he's way out there. No doubt about that. So uh, we can talk about that. Uh, what do you think about, we got a minute to go, what do you think about Speaker yes, Pelosi's 1,800-page stimulus uh, uh, that she wants to get passed? That's not going to get passed. It's dead in the Senate already. I think it's about 1,799 pages too long. That's what I think about it. Right? It's, the problem is, look, I have no problem with the notion that we need to support uh, pub- the public during these uh, difficult times. But more and more, these bills become giveaways to special interests. And we need to be very concerned about that kind of behavior. I'm with you. I am totally with you. All right. So you go relax. Have a cup of your special coffee that you make. And uh, then we'll come back here in about five minutes and continue our discussion here on the Dave Ellswick Show. I'm sending an uh, instant message out to see if I can tell everybody a story that just stunned me today when I read it and, uh, and give that to you in the next half hour as well. But right now, let's go find out what Sean Hannity has for us. An interesting thing happened uh, just before the break, Robert, and that mm-hmm. is I got an instant message on uh, on my uh, Facebook, you know, that, that you can contact people. Post. Yeah, that's what I got. And mm-hmm. uh, this person, let me just read this to you. Now, I asked him, I said, I won't use your name. Uh, he doesn't mention the con- uh, company. I didn't ask. I'm just going to read what he has to say here. He says... My job asked me to not listen to your show in the company truck. He reminded me it's his computer, therefore his truck. I reminded him that he pays me minimum wage, which is a 33% loss from my last job. It was a mutual agreement that I can do better at another HVAC company, and I'm comfortable with that decision. He went on to say, Uh, I'm a conservative Christian. I've worked HVAC for six years now. 
I grew up in the industry. My grandfather was an instructor. I understand that I'm not to bring my political opinions to work, and I don't. But when working on a loan construction pad, I do listen to your show. My hand got upset and told the boss. Boss and I had a polite discussion mentioned above. And short story is I'm going fishing tomorrow. And uh, I've heard this from more than just this person. Uh, They didn't lose their jobs. They were approached uh, by uh, their managers or the owners and and asked not to listen specifically to my show. And I'm really kind of stunned by that because I'm one of the biggest cheerleaders for business uh, in the state of Arkansas. So I, I this kind of blew my mind that. That this happened. Now, with that said, let me just say, I think it's fine if you have a business and you're running that business uh, that you can tell your people uh, you can't if if you're giving them a computer for work, you can tell them you might you may not during work hours use my computer to listen to the Dave Ellswick show or whatever. I have no problem with that. Uh, It bothers me that it went so far that this person ended up losing their job uh, because they were standing up saying, what's the big deal about listening to Ellswick's show? So anyway, I just thought you'd find that interesting, Robert. Well, of course I find it interesting, and I also find it interesting that apparently to the boss, the senior person in terms of skill, as it's described, was the one who left, and the the hand, the assistant, was the one who stayed. It strikes me that the more skilled worker might be in higher demand, but so be it. And indeed, he hopefully got a job at another place, getting paid more money to do his work. We I don't know see. about more money, but he has another like, job already. He's, he's getting well, to fish great. tomorrow and, and gets a long weekend, but he's going to be back working on Monday. So well, he evidently fantastic. qualifies uh, as far as the talent goes and things that, of that nature. Now, I've been told by other workers uh, that they, you know, you can, you can listen to things uh, on the, the Internet while you're doing work on your computer uh, at your job. And a lot of people do that. Uh, and sure. they, you know, and they're not bothering anybody in the next cubicle or anything. And they're told by uh, higher ups that, in fact, I was told by several people, they've been told you can listen to music or whatever, but do not listen to the Dave Ellswick show. That really flips me out as far as that's concerned, because I'm the guy out there trying to get keep business going. Exactly. Exactly. Well, look. I think you've highlighted the point here, which is there's this conflict between, of course, the rights of a business owner to control his equipment, his or her equipment, and the free flow of information. I don't mean a legal conflict. I mean this moral conflict, this conflict in terms of desires. The bottom line is, I think people should stop worrying about what the next person is doing in terms of what they're listening to on the radio. Now, if you are interfering with the work, that's one thing. But this is not some sort of punk rock music being blasted. It's talk radio. So 
in any event, it's just, I think you're right. It's really a curious development. Maybe somebody's political agenda is outweighing uh, smart operations of a business. And what we can only hope for, Dave, is uh, bosses like that who get rid of employees like this who might turn out to be their most skilled employees, of course, I don't know this fellow, are going to suffer in their ability to provide services to the public. So we'll let the market, in the end, filter out uh, the right thing to do. Well, I do know this. I'm going to give a, I'm going to send an instant message back to this guy and, and say, uh, uh, as soon as uh, restaurants are back to being able to have full capacity and whatever, I, I want to buy him lunch one day at BJ's uh, where I've taken you before, where you get some of the best home cooking in the area and uh, buy him and buy, and buy him lunch and sit down and we can talk a little bit uh, politics and, and Christianity and things of that nature. That would be a whole lot of fun. Indeed. But, Indeed. but an I'll interesting, I mean, that's just an interesting story to come out of nowhere. I mean, seriously, comes out of nowhere. And I had no idea people were running into this problem. It just tells me that there's, I guess there's a lot of blue dogs out there that are still hanging around, got their own businesses, and can't, and and they definitely don't listen to my show. If they listened to my show, they would know uh, that I'm 100% uh, in favor of business uh, and businesses to succeed. Uh, So uh, I think they're, cutting their nose off to spite their face, but that, that's neither here nor there. Of course they are, Dave. And, of course, this relates somewhat, not entirely, but somewhat to the bill that we had been advocating in the last legislative session and we are already preparing to move ahead with in the forthcoming session, and that is free speech for public employees when they're off-duty. To be clear, when they're off-duty, and that's why I say it relates, but not entirely. Currently, under current law, you realize that some government bureau hack can tell a subordinate, well, I didn't like what you wrote on Facebook last night. Yeah. You know what my response to that is? Don't read my Facebook. That's Here's it. Here's an idea. Keep your big nose out of my Facebook. <laughs> but currently... The law allows some mid-level bureaucrat to discipline or fire an employee for that. And the problem is there's no economic incentive in the government sector. So what you get is some mid-level bureau hack exercising his own political preference and whim and fancy and fiat over a subordinate. And that should never be the case. And so we are going to have a bill again and pass it this time. This says if you're a government employee, you write something on your face post, as I mockingly like to call it, you're free to do so. You're not allowed to discriminate, of course, violate laws of, against discrimination, but you're allowed to write what you want on Facebook, etc., without having some other mid-level bureau hack tell you what to do on your free time. Now, if you can't get freedom-loving Republicans to back a bill like that, they ain't freedom-loving Republicans. They themselves have become bureaucrats. So this is going to be a culling. This is going to be a distinction 
creating bill in which we see true conservative ideals distinguished from, if I may borrow a term, swamp-like behavior. Yeah, I I agree. All right, we got to get a break in. Robert Steinbach is with us. He'll be with us uh, during the rest of this hour. He'll be back tomorrow. Uh, don't miss him. And Chris Corbett starting at 7 o'clock going to 9 o'clock. And uh, I'm working on some surprises for tomorrow as well. I'll let you know what they are as soon as I get them confirmed. But right now, uh, we need to take a break. Traffic, weather, right here on the Dave Ellswick Show. This is the Dave Ellswick Show, and I am Robert Steinbuck. Dave has stepped away from the mic for a moment. We will continue our conversation, and Dave, of course, will be back momentarily. What Dave and I are going to continue talking about is this interesting development in the Flynn case. As you all know, the Justice Department decided that Flynn should not have been prosecuted. And what any good prosecutor should be doing in that context is saying, well, then we drop the charges. In other words, prosecutors should never continue with a case of any sort if they develop the conclusion that the prosecution should not have been brought. Deference must always be provided towards the defendant. By that, I mean deference that the law already supplies, a presumption of innocence. And if the facts that are being analyzed come out in a way uh, different than initially presented, such that the prosecutor, in this case, the chief prosecutor, that being the attorney general, of course, Bill Barr, concludes, wait a second, this prosecution shouldn't be, have been brought well, then prosecutors need to drop the case, and that's what happened in the Flynn case. You hear people say, well, that's unprecedented, you see. Well, frankly, there's been a lot of unprecedented behavior from what went on in the first place, meaning the reaction, if unprecedented, is unprecedented because the initial behavior has been unprecedented. Sending the FBI in to talk to a White House employee without the FBI informing the DOJ or the White House, that's unprecedented. That's right. And in fact, a senior DOJ official who's an Obamaite said that that was rogue behavior by Comey. So we don't see the, the, the um, media calling that much unprecedented, but that was unprecedented. And so if the reaction is unprecedented, so be it. I'm not, by the way, agreeing necessarily that that action is unprecedented. I don't know that federal prosecutors have never dropped a charge or never dropped a charge of perjury in the past. These kind of blanket claims of negative behavior by the media are often unfounded and sometimes couched in language that expose the deception where they say, we have been unable to find. How hard did you look? And so this is really the problem that we often see in these media claims. They are founded on quicksand. In any event, what happened? The AG decided that Flynn shouldn't be prosecuted. That's the AG's job. It's not the job of the subordinate. It's the job of the top 
dog ultimately. Now, they don't always make that decision, obviously. The AG doesn't review all cases. But the problem, so why does this case deserve that special attention? Well, because it's gotten special attention throughout the process, hasn't it? So there's nothing new about special attention here. The left just doesn't like the result of that so-called special attention. So the AG goes to the court and files a document that says we are dismissing our charges. And the judge says, wait a second, I'm going to appoint someone to tell me as an advocate for the other side, quote unquote, that other side being the, the now non-existent prosecution, why I should not drop the charges. No, it's not unprecedented for courts to appoint advocates when the government decides not to pursue a litigation, usually civil, but nonetheless, that has happened in the past. But what is unprecedented there is to who a couple of days prior wrote an op-ed critical of the dismissal. So you've got someone coming in with a political agenda to argue before the court consistent with that political agenda. Typically, when a court picks an outsider to advocate a position that has been abandoned by a litigant, they try to pick someone impartial, and they try to pick someone with expertise. So that's a little bit curious how that choice was made. But moreover, here's the really interesting part about it. We have a criminal justice system that inures towards the defendant at all times. Perhaps I should say hues towards the defendant at all times. At least it's supposed to. In other words, the presumption of innocence must be present throughout the process. So if a prosecutor says there is no case there, it strikes me that that is uh, uh, evidence towards the presumption of innocence that is overwhelming. So how do you dial that back? I don't know the answer to that. And I certainly uh, would lo uh, look forward to hearing what the arguments being made by this appointed uh, quasi-prosecutor will be. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. But this is a highly unusual move by a judge in a case in which the government agrees to drop charges. I can tell you that the government has dropped charges in the past in terms of settlement agreements. That's what they routinely do. So the notion that dropping charges alone is somehow unprecedented is not true. Dave, did I hear you rejoining us? Um, no, I, I don't oh. know if he's back yet. I just texted him and just checking on gotcha. him. So. No worries. No worries. I just heard uh, something on the line. I shall continue with my discussion of Judge Sullivan's rather interesting uh, order. So Judge Sullivan throughout this process has raised the, the hackles, hackles, cackles, hackles, I think, of uh, conservatives in his comments regarding Flynn. What has happened here? It, Judge Sullivan was given the guilty plea by Flynn, of course, 
And the process has been, Judge Sullivan's process or his involvement has been to determine whether or not uh, um, what Flynn has done so far, what I should say, what to punish Flynn for what he pled to. And there has been a fight between the government attorneys at the lower level and the Flynn attorneys on what the appropriate sentence should be. The government attorneys had argued that Flynn was not as cooperative as he should have been. But what went on in the first instance? Flynn was charged with lying to investigators that were sent to interview him uh, through a rogue process as described by a former DOJ official who's an Obama-lite. And Flynn was threatened that his son would be prosecuted if he didn't plead guilty. I've long argued, even prior to the Flynn case, that it's inappropriate to leverage defendants with charges against their relatives. Now, those in favor of that process argue, well, it's all, if, if the charges are good against each individual, what's wrong with leveraging one against another? I'll tell you what's wrong with it. It's immoral. The Justice Department, prosecutors in general, need to be above mere negotiation tactics. They need to have a higher level of justice. That's why I say that if the Justice Department drops charges against an individual, it strikes me as overwhelming evidence that that case needs to be dismissed. Because if you don't have the confidence of the prosecutor in a process that presumes the innocence of a defendant, how can a judge or anyone else move ahead? So they leverage him with charges against his own son, and now they come back and they say what? They say, well, he pled guilty. Yeah, of course he pled guilty. Of course he pled guilty. Yeah, he went ahead and fell on his own sword to protect his family. That's exactly right. And now they say, well, that's proof that he lied to, uh, to the investigators. Well, no. No, he, he may have taken the plea, notwithstanding that he believed he didn't lie to the investigators. So now some folks come forward and say, well, then he lied in his plea deal. Well, you can't have it both ways, right? You can't force someone into a plea deal and then uh, uh, allow the process in which he's allowed to get out of the plea deal and say, well, now we're going to charge him with lying in the deal. It's this act of desperation. It reminds me of what happened to that Navy SEAL when he was exonerated uh, from virtually all of the charges, and they tried to take away his trident pin uh, because it's it's this level of vindictiveness that's built into the bureaucracy. And the president said, no, 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 no. If this guy was exonerated of 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 all of the serious charges against him, you're not going to take away his uh, trident pin. So, All right, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna jump in. We're out of time. I'll see Very you tomorrow, seven o'clock. Robert Steinbach, six a.m. for me.